turn to our passage for today, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 to 11. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 11, 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils with me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Good morning. Wow, this is really tall. And it rolls. <laughs> Let's not do that. It's really good to be here with you. I ordinarily would test stuff out like that. I was uh, just on the blue route this morning, and everything starts to shut down. And I think, uh-oh, that's not good. But OK, it's a little slow down. And then it got slower and slower and slower. I, looked, I, I then did the map thing, and I'm like, oh, now I'm going to be 15 minutes late. A couple minutes later, I'm now going to be half an hour late. A few minutes later, as I'm calling people to let them know, now I'm going to be here at 11 o'clock. And I think, oh, this is not good. Lord was very gracious. Uh, one of our brothers thinks very highly of me. He said, oh, so you found an exit to get off of. I said, well, you know, there are those breaks in the guardrails. And he's like, well, I'm sure you weren't the only one. And no, I wasn't, but it's very good to be with you. Can someone get me a stool, please, from in the back that doesn't roll? Thank you. This Advent season, we're doing something a little different. Every year, the church, and I mean by that the capital C church, every year the church takes four weeks to remember the promises of Jesus' first coming and to renew our longing for his second coming. It's important, then, to have a sense of who is it, actually, who's coming, who, what, what is he like? See, some people have this idea that God is a pretty unpleasant person, very critical, very upset, and if that's the one that you're expecting to come, you could do without him. 
other people have this idea, thank you, that God is a, a, a just kind of a nice person, but not all that interested, not all that involved in regular life. And it would be hard to get excited about either one of those gods showing up. So we are taking this Advent season to get a better sense of who it is who's actually coming, who Jesus is. And the way that we're approaching this this year is to study how God responds to humanity in different periods of time. Because each of those different periods of time call for something else from him, and so you learn something else, something new about him. Now, the periods of time that we're talking about are probably not the ones that you studied in school. But they are the periods of time that have to do with what is taking place in the human race. They are the periods of time as God looks in at humanity's history. And so, for instance, last week we focused on creation, on what God intended for humanity in that period of time before sin entered into the world. And we saw that God's intention was for joy, that he created us in joy, for joy, so that he could rejoice in us, and that his plan was to create this joy-filled world in which we would perfectly fit in, joyfully fit in, and that we would then rejoice in him be an amazing world to live in. As you know, it was also a world that was lost to us. And so the next period of time that we are now living in is this one where sin has entered into this world, where we have rejected what brings God joy. That does leave us a problem because as messed up as this joyless world is, it is still God's world. And so what is it then how then will he respond to us if he, if he is not our greatest joy? If something else sparks more joy in us than he does, what is his interaction with us going to be like? That's the drama, the underlying tension in the second big period of, of human history. God creates this perfect world for a period of time, but then sin enters into this world and ruins it. We call this time period the fall. It's the fall of humanity into sin. And it's a period of time where God now has to deal with things that he does not rejoice in. And uppermost among those non-joy things are how people treat him when he tries to have a relationship with them. God's reality is that he now has to deal with us when we have rejected him. It's an ugly reality for God to live in, but as he deals with it, you see a different side of him come out that you did not see come out in creation. And it's a side that you would not have seen come out of him in a perfect world. It's not a good thing that the world is ruined, but it does open up an opportunity for you and me to learn something about what he's like inside. And so this morning, to see you a little bit more clearly into who our God is, we'll try to answer three different questions. First, what is it that humans reject? Second, what does that rejection look like? And then third, how does God respond to rejection? What is it that humans reject? How does, what does that rejection look like? And then how does God respond to rejection? First, what it is that humans reject. Even in the fall, God has left an offer on the table. It's a really good offer. He still wants a relationship with people, with human beings, and he expresses this desire over and over and over and over again. That's why he sent a prophet, Hosea, to speak to his people. Now, Hosea prophesied during the time when God's people were divided between two nations. There was Judah in the south, and there was the kingdom, the nation of Israel in the north. God sent Hosea 
to the northern kingdom. It was a kingdom that was also called at different times Ephraim. And he sent Hosea to remind them of what he was offering them and also charge them with having rejected what he was offering them. And so Hosea begins in chapter 11 by reminding Israel of their history. That early on in their life as a nation, verse 1, when Israel was a child, God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And he goes on to describe then this relationship that he built with Israel. That verse 3, he taught them to walk. He held up their hands as they were learning to walk. He healed them when they got bruised. And God says he was happy to do that. Verse 4, that he led them with kindness. He led them with love. That he eased the yoke, the yoke of slavery that Egypt had placed on them. And instead of making them work for him, making them serve him, he bent down, verse 4, God on their level to feed them. God himself served them. He's giving you a picture of a really good, really tender parent. This is a father who loves his son, who's invested what's best for his son. And because I've talked to a number of you, I, I think we need to take a bit of an aside here. Because this is what parents are supposed to be, and yet I know that for many of us here at Renewal, that's not been our experience. We've experienced parents who were the opposite. And so some of us had parents who were distant. They were disconnected, hardly noticed us, didn't take a whole lot of interest in us. Others of us only wish that that was true. We had parents who were critical, demanding, borderline emotionally abusive, Distant, in our minds, would have been an improvement. And when you've had those kind of experiences, it can be really hard when God talks about himself as a parent. We expect him then to be what? To be like the parent that we experienced growing up. We expect him to be like a human parent. But if you think like that, that's actually got the picture backwards. God is nothing like a human parent. Our human parents are supposed to be like him, not the other way around. That doesn't make him bad when he describes himself as a parent. It means that we have to understand, okay, the human copy rejected what the original was all about. And so you can't read a passage like this thinking about what you grew up experiencing and then overlaying that back onto God. Instead, you have to relearn what a good father is by looking at our God and then going from there. And this is not only how you learn what it means for him to be your father, but it's also then how you learn to be a parent, how you learn to engage children. And so you have to do the hard work. All of us do. There isn't any of us who had perfect parents. All of us have to do this work. We have to go into Scripture, and we have to study what does God mean when he says he's a father? What is he like? What's he do? What does he think? Why does he do those things? And it's as we study that in Scripture that we get an understanding then of what we should expect as he parents us. And at the same moment, he's teaching us what we should be like as we parent our children or as we interact with other people's kids. And so very intentionally, you have to push aside your own experiences. You have to relearn what to expect from him. That helps you understand, okay, I can trust him as a father, even though I couldn't necessarily trust my own parents. You have to experience that relationship with him, and then you copy that as you engage with your own kids or with other people's. 
Okay, that's the aside. Back to Hosea. God is a really good, tender father. Absolutely loves his son. Cares for him while he's a child. And he's doing that to what? To invite the child into a relationship. Do you remember the first great commandment? You can find it in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is the only possible reasonable response to a God who is like this. It's, it's what? It's to love him back. God longs for his people. He longs for you and for me to have a relationship where we know him, and as we understand him, we love what, we is, what it is that we see from him. And that's actually the decision that all children have to make. When we're very little, the relationship with our parents, that's a given because of necessity. Children are completely dependent on their parents for everything. They're dependent physically, they're dependent emotionally. And so the bond when, you're, when you have little ones, the bond is defined by need, by necessity. But as children grow up, they don't need as much. And they can then choose to build relationships with whomever they want. They can choose to love their parents or they can choose to reject their parents. And it makes sense then that they would make that decision based on what they themselves have experienced from their parents. So if their parents did not lead and discipline with love, if their parents were not engaged in the, with the child for the child's sake, it's not a surprise that when the child decides they don't really want a whole lot to do with their parents. If their parents, on the other hand, were invested in them for their good, they led them with love, they disciplined with love, you would expect then the child to respond with love. It just makes sense. So when you look at Israel's history with God, with their father, you see all the good stuff that he did for them, you would expect them to love him back. He has given them every reason to say yes to him. And the history of Israel is the history of humanity. It's the history of you and me. Given every reason to say yes to God, they said no. They didn't want what he was offering. They tasted the kind of love that he had for them, and they decided it's not what they were hungry for. They rejected him. So verse 5, they refused to return to him. Verse 7, they were bent on turning away from him. They decided they didn't want any more of him. They didn't want this kind of love. That's point one. That's what humans reject. Point two. What does that rejection actually look like? What form does it take? I've been reading a book by a woman named Rachel Gilson. She shares her story of growing up in Southern California as an atheist. And in her words, she developed, quote, a firm, firm rejection of Christianity, unquote. And she did so for a variety of reasons. Her experience was that Christianity was both intellectually soft, unable to deal with real ideas and to deal with truth. It was intellectually soft, and it was culturally mean. That her experience of Christians were that they hated people like her because of the sexual lifestyle that she found most fulfilling. And so she rejected Christianity. She saw it, in her words, as a threat to everything that was central to her identity. That's the idea that I think most of us have when we think about what it is that, look, that rejecting God looks like. It's when you stare him in the face, you weigh what he says, you weigh how he calls you to think, how he calls you to live, and you say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. It's one kind of rejection. There's another kind, however, and Hosea shows us that kind. 
This kind is much harder to see. It's the religious kind. It's the kind that flies under the radar. It's the kind that you and I could easily miss in our own lives. It's where you have some kind of God experience. Maybe even when you participate in regular religious activities. But none of what you're doing excites you. You do it, but if you're honest, it repulses you. It's the experience of having God call you and you wish he hadn't. That's what was happening in Israel among God's people. God says, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son, but verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more they experienced of God, the less they wanted him. And the more that other gods then seemed interesting to them. And so instead of being thrilled that God was calling them to himself, verse 2, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings and burning offerings to idols. They experienced God, found him wanting, lacking in what they wanted, and they thought they could fill up somewhere else. They willfully rejected him. But Hosea tells us they also blindly rejected him. They rejected him, and they didn't realize that that's what they were doing. They didn't see reality the way that it was. God says, verse 3, that he taught them to walk, that he held them up and even healed them when they got bruised. But verse 3, they did not know that I healed them. That should sober every one of us in this room. They personally experienced God's tender nursing. They experienced his involvement in their life, and they did not know that I healed them. That means that they attributed it to something else other than him. You think, how is that possible? How would it be possible for a little child that you had nursed and made, helped make the pain go away when they fell down, how is it possible that they could not know that you did that? How could Israel not know God healed them? That happens when you don't do the hard work of thinking about your life. When you don't do the hard work of saying to yourself, this good thing happened to me in a bad world while God was trying to teach me to mature. Therefore, this good thing in a bad world must come from where? It must come from God. He's the one who healed me. They didn't do that. They didn't see him in their lives. And that's part of what it means to blindly reject him. It's a refusal to consciously relate all of your life to him in some way. And because you're not connecting your life with his, when something good comes, you think it comes from somewhere else. It's part of rejecting him. Verse 5, God says it's refusing him. Verse 7, it's being determined to turn away from him. You're learning here that turning to him held no appeal to them. Which raises the question, why? Why, after all the good stuff that he had done for them, why did they not turn to him? It's because something else held more appeal. There are two things mentioned here. In verse 2, you hear about them sacrificing to the Baals and the idols. In verses 5 and 11, you hear about them going to Egypt and Assyria. So instead of turning to God, they turned to other deities and they turned to human nations. And they thought those two things would somehow give them something better than God's kind of love would. Now, what are those two things? The Baals and the idols promised what? They promised a certain life and a certain lifestyle. Baal was a weather god. He could make it rain. 
in the mythology. That meant, that, that meant everything to people who lived in an agrarian society. If there's enough water at the right time, then the crops grow and you survive. Actually, if there's the right amount of rain in the right amount of time, you thrive. You actually could make a profit. You could be rich. But if there's not the right amount of water at the right time, then things are kind of dicey. You're certainly not going to be well off. You might not even survive. So when the Israelites are sacrificing to the Baals, they're hedging their bets. They're saying, yes, God fed our ancestors, but we're not convinced that he'll do the same for us in the way that we want. So we'll also sacrifice and bring burnt offerings to these other deities. That's a rejection of God. It's either a lack of confidence that he'll love them and provide for them, or it's confidence that he won't love them the way that they want to be loved or love them the way that they could be loved. It's a belief that he won't give them what they want when he gives them what he thinks they need. And so they ran to these other deities to provide what they wanted. Now running to the nations, that was a little different. Egypt and Assyria were the two most powerful nations at the time. And Israel was sending people on dif diplomatic missions to those nations. They were seeking political alliances that would give them greater security as their own nation which also was a rejection of God. It's a belief that he could not or would not protect them. It was their belief that they would be better off if they allied themselves with these other nations. Now, do you see what's going on here with this movement toward deities and this movement toward nations? It's the same two things that catch us up as well. It's driven by desire and it's driven by fear. It's driven by desire. We want certain things that we think will give us a good life, and we don't see God giving them to us. It's our desire for something else that moves us to pursue these other things, or it's fear. Because there are things that we are concerned might break into our lives that we don't want, and we don't see God protecting us from them, and we don't believe that he's big enough to help us if they do break into our lives. And so we spend our lives running to something else to get what we want and to guard us against the things that we don't want. You and I are exactly the same as the Israelites. The only difference is in what we desire and what we fear. Let me give you three quick examples. For instance, we don't want to feel lonely. And we don't feel like God's love could match a human being's love. We're afraid that building a relationship with God will be too much effort for way too little payoff. And so we pursue human relationships, even if they're not good for us, because they feel more real to us. They feel more filling, more accessible, and we look to them for life, even at the same moment that we are trying to draw life, suck life out of that person that we're pursuing. Or perhaps some of us are still looking for an identity, something that we can feel secure in. We don't feel valued. We don't feel validated by our, the family we grew up in or by our society. And so what do we do? We work like maniacs. We are driven to excel at work so that we can feel like we are somebody. So that we can feel like we're needed. Or we're Johnny on the spot for anyone who needs help. Our friends, our neighbors, always willing to drop everything at a moment's notice because finally somebody needs us. And because somebody needs us, now we feel like someone that's not serving because we're full. 
We're serving actually because we're empty and we're trying to fill ourselves. And this is especially dangerous in the church. You can get the reputation of being a servant in the church and have it go under the radar that what you're really trying to do is fill yourself up instead of pour yourself out. God comes along, he offers to love us, to make us his son or daughter, to give us an identity that is literally unmatched in the universe. And we look at him and we say, that's nice, but not really enough. And so we run ourselves into the ground looking to be needed by someone, by anyone, and it never fills us. You know how you know it never fills you? Because when the next need arises, you'll drop everything to run after that one. You're just chasing the dragon, trying to fill up the emptiness inside. Or thirdly, others of us are just terrified. We live in fear. Fear that we are going to lose the things in life that we actually like. We like what we have. We like what we've collected around us. We like our health. We can't imagine a life with less now that we have arrived. We can't imagine trusting God to feed us to bend down to our level and to give us what we need. We can't trust him to do that because he might not give us the same things that we would choose to give ourselves. And so we would much rather have our life and our lifestyle the way it is and we are terrified of losing it. Terrified then of anything that brings uncertainty into our lives that might threaten it. And so ring the changes, COVID, Rising inflation, roller coaster stock markets, various social movements, what happens? They all grow outsized in our minds. They are the real dominant things we think about. And being loved by God, having Him tenderly care for us, that seems it seems really thin, really weak in comparison. A God who loves us, yeah, okay, but in masks and vaccines do we trust? in retirement accounts, in political parties. That's where the real power lies. That's what will give us a good life. That's what will preserve our lives. Now, you need to be really careful how you're hearing me right now. There is nothing wrong with relationships, nothing wrong with serving, nothing wrong about thinking wisely about the future. It is not godly to act foolishly in the face of danger and to naively say, well, God will protect me. There is nothing wrong with relationships serving and thinking wisely but there is everything wrong if you think that any of those things is more substantial than a relationship with the God who made relationships the God who made a place for you in his kingdom that needs you the God who shepherds the future and absolutely guarantees that you will be and you will end up where he plans for you to be See, the problem is not with the things that the Israelites wanted. The problem is that they wanted them more than they wanted what God had for them at any given moment. They thought their definition of life was better than his, and they trusted their ability to obtain that better life for themselves, and they trusted that more than God in his good, tender care would provide for them. So they didn't trust that how God was leading them was best. They didn't trust that there was no other way for them to have a rich, full, joyful life other than the path that he laid out in front of them. They didn't believe that. And so they looked to the Baals, the idols, to Egypt, to Assyria, to hedge their bets. And they pursued those other things while they also pursued God. 
kind of. They figured they could, verse 7, call out to the Most High, that they could still be religious, that they could offer some sacrifices to him, that they could go to service, that they could call out to the Most High while they investigated these other things, while they trusted these other things to give them what they really wanted in life. They thought they could do that, and everything would be fine with him, that they could appease him somehow with these other things. And God's assessment of them in verse 7 is that they were bent, determined, bent on turning away from him, determined not to go with him, not to go where he was going. Now, they didn't look like outright atheists. But God said, I can't see the difference. By loving something else, they're not loving him. And so to extend the metaphor, the child that he called out of Egypt had grown into a teenager. A teenager who despised their parent. So point one, what is being rejected is a tender, loving God. Point two, rejection looks like running after something else because you think it will be more satisfying and more fulfilling than a relationship with God ever could be. Point three, how does God now respond to that level of rejection? Well, I want you to notice first what he doesn't do. He doesn't, verse 8, revisit what he's done to Adma and Zeboim. These were two towns that God completely destroyed. They were near neighbors to Sodom and Gomorrah. So when he rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, also destroyed Adma and Zeboim because of their wickedness. You learn one more time that God judges evil. It's part of who he is. He created a perfect world that reflects his own goodness, and he's not about to settle for anything less than that goodness. He will have a perfectly good world again, and anything short of that goodness is going to be destroyed. Because if he allows it to continue, then that not goodness is going to hurt and harm people who live on his world. And so he holds back at this point in time a lot of his judgment. He saves it up for what he calls the day of judgment. But he doesn't hold it all back. There are these times where we get previews of it here and now, and he sends a warning. It's a warning that says, a day is coming when evil will not last, when it will be completely, entirely eradicated. Those warnings are the times when his judgment breaks into this world, like in the case of these two towns, when he quickly wiped them out. That is there in our God. He's done it before. He will do it again. And it would be a completely appropriate response to these people who have rejected the very best that he has to offer them. And yet God doesn't do that here. Does not judge here. Why not? Because he explains, verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You read between the lines here? God is really upset. There is burning anger in him. Anger that he could unload if he wanted. He does not take being jilted lightly. He could come in wrath. And that is how you would expect anybody else to respond. If you were to pour yourself out for someone else, you give them the absolute best that you have to give, and you are only invested in them for their sake. And they just take it and 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 blow you off. They want your things, but they don't want you. Wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you be upset at being used? 
Anger makes sense. It can be hot anger. It can be cold anger. Take revenge aggressively or completely ignore people more passively. Those are very normal human responses. But God says he's not human. He's God. And so he will not execute his anger. He will not act on his anger. He won't come in wrath. Why? Because the last part of verse 8, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It's because the love of verse 1 that moved him toward Israel in the first place is still there. That love is still active, still moves him. Israel and their rejection has not snuffed it out. His heart does not burn with anger. It could. But something else is there. Something that warms him, not burns. Something that makes him tender. That moves him toward Israel. Not to destroy them, but for their good. And so in the face of being jilted, rejected, having had his love thrown back at him in his face, his heart tromped on, God does the unthinkable. He takes the most precious thing that he has. He takes this heart of love and he opens it to them again. He shows them what's going on inside of him. He tells them what he's feeling. He shows his heart to the same people who despised it when they saw it the first time. Nobody does that. You only show your true feelings to people that you can trust not to hurt you, right? You get vulnerable with people who can handle you well. That's just wise. No human being keeps throwing themselves at someone, offering themselves to someone who keeps rejecting them. But God is not a man. He's God. He's not fickle. His love is not conditional. It's not based on how well you return it. He is strong enough in himself, complete enough in himself to keep on loving. And he's strong enough to take the risk of revealing himself. Showing even more of his heart to people who already proved they couldn't handle what he showed them earlier. People who didn't deserve what he showed them. And so he does not come in wrath. But he does come. And he comes in such a way that people this time respond to him. Verse 10. He roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. He roars, but it's not a roar that destroys. It's a roar that ends up with them coming from wherever they've been, seeking something else, Egypt, Assyria, and ends up returning them to their homes, to where they should be. What is God doing with his roar? He's calling his children. But this time it's a call they can't ignore. And so they come trembling. It's a word that can mean they come in fear, or it's a word that means they come in awe. In awe of this one who would be that good to them. Who still wants what's best for them despite everything they've done to him. And so they finally leave all the things they've trusted in other than him, and they come where they come to him. This is God's response to rejection. It's the story of a love that is so strong that it takes rejectors, enemies, and converts them. Turns them into lovers. 
It's a love that triumphs over every obstacle. The rejection in our hearts and the wrath in his. And how does he do that? What is it that lets God roar and not devour? What lets him call but not destroy? God loves his people passionately, but he also loves goodness passionately. He will destroy wickedness. So how can God call and not destroy? What resolves the tension? How can he call you and me? It's because centuries later he calls another son out of Egypt. Jesus and his family flee to Egypt when Jesus is only a young boy. He's less than two years old. He's a child. Matthew records in chapter 2 that they come back, and Matthew explains what's going on there by quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. That when Jesus was a child, God loved him. And out of Egypt, he called his son. Explains that God called another son, a perfect son. A son who did respond to him, not just as a child, but throughout his entire life. Who loved God back, who loved God with the same intense love that God loved him with. Who turned to God and turned to him and turned to him. Who never turned away from God to find life satisfaction in anything else other than God. Jesus did all that, loved God under the shadow, knowing that one day God would turn from him, knowing that Jesus would cry out one day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me? Jesus knew that the day was coming when he would so fully identify with Israel, when he would so fully identify with you and me, that he would take our place. He would take the place of the rejectors. And that in taking our place, he would absorb God's judgment against our rejection. So that he, the only true lover of God, would be completely wiped out. That he would bear the burning fire of judgment. That God would not roar at him, calling him. But that the lion would devour him. And Jesus' response, knowing that that was coming, was to keep loving the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. To not turn from God. To not turn from the path that God taught him to walk on. And he did that because what God loves is no longer having any wrath or anger against you. God loves having his judgment fully exhausted so that the only thing that he has left for you is compassion. So that he can call you and not destroy you. This is the beauty that we celebrate at Christmas each year. This is the one who has come. This is what all of our fairy tales try to capture. They're just a, a slight echo of reality. But they hold out this hope that somewhere, somehow, there is someone who would not give you what you deserve, who would not treat you like you've treated them, who would not come to earth with wrath and anger, but who would come with a love that is so strong and beautiful, makes everything else look pale and weak in comparison, 
It's this hope that somewhere there is a love that is so satisfying you could drink from it and let everything else go that you try to fill yourself with. Remember Rachel Gilson? I told you that's the author of the book I was reading earlier, The Young Atheist. She follows Jesus now. And the reason that she follows Jesus is because she discovered a love with him that she couldn't believe, that she didn't think was possible. A real personal connection with a real personal loving God. It was very clear to her she was not a good person, not a lovable person, but she discovered someone who would love her anyway. And the love that she found in Jesus is so much better than anything she has experienced anywhere else that she left her former lifestyle for him. To have him wasn't easy. It certainly hasn't been smooth. She's had plenty of setbacks. Super honest about how challenging it can still be. But her experience is that what she has found in Christ's love for her is worth anything that he's called her to give up. It's worth anything to walk on the path that he has for her because she knows that that's the only path where real life and real love is to be found. If you have not had that experience, you could because the same God still calls to people, still invites you to turn to him, still holds out the same love that he has showered on countless other people, Take him up on that offer. Take him up on it if it's the first time. Take him up on it if it's the thousandth time and you feel yourself needing to be refreshed. We're about to share communion. We're about to remember what it cost him in order to love us. Let me pray for us and then give us a few moments to prepare our own hearts to share. Lord Jesus, the only reason that we know anything about love is because of you. Lord, that as many times as we have rejected your goodness, your love, your tenderness, your compassion, Lord, you've decided that you want your people to be with you anyway. Lord, it's not for anything good in us. It's for the goodness that is in you. And so, Jesus, we are grateful. We're thankful today for you giving up your body, giving up your blood to pay for our sins so that we could enter into a relationship with you. Lord, move among us now as your people talk with you, cry out to you. Lord, come and fill. Meet us where we need to be met.